0: Father, we thank you that you have satisfied us, Lord, beyond what we could ever imagine with the fruits of the gospel through Christ Jesus, our Lord, who secured for us all the blessings and provision of salvation, as well as the promises overflowing to us in Christ Jesus that will increase until glory one day. Overflowing with beauty and grace, you have bestowed upon us the riches of your mercy beyond what we could ever imagine and have yet to experience as we look forward to the day when we are called home and share, Lord, consummate, perfect, satisfied, repaired relationship with you forever and ever. We thank you that this is substantially the case for every believer in this room, that you have purchased Christ by the power of your blood, a reunion between us and a holy God. We thank you that you have recorded your work to this end and your plans and your covenant promises from the time of creation all the way through the New Testament in careful detail, a disclosure of your nature and character, your works, your worth, and attributes for us to behold and to consider. This morning as we turn to the pages of Scripture, I pray that the Spirit would write these words on the tables of our hearts. And I pray that you would use the proclamation of your holy word to transform us more into the image of Christ and to equip us to proclaim the gospel to others. I pray that you would renew within us, Lord, a fresh realization of the power, the authority, the beauty, the majesty, the glory, and the loveliness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all of this, we pray that you would be glorified and your people would be strengthened and edified. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, our passage of Scripture, which we will consider in today's sermon, comes to us from Genesis chapter 5. Turn there with me, if you would, in your Scriptures, Genesis chapter 5. The title of this morning's message in our Genesis series is Generational Revelation. Last time we were in Genesis, we considered the end of chapter 4 under the title, Generational Archetypes. Archetype is a pattern that gives you an idea of other um, examples that follow. And so we considered, in the experience of Cain, in the experience of Lamech, for instance, these examples of the seed of the serpent, so to speak, how these generations serve as an archetype of mankind fallen and in sin. This morning, on the other side of the coin... We pick up on the genealogy and the lineage of Seth, the seed of the woman, as Genesis 3.15 has offered these categories. And now we see that there is revelation in the generations. There are certain individuals and events that are singled out, that are highlighted by Moses as he records the history of ancient man to demonstrate to us profound truths about God and His gospel. The aim of this morning's message is to showcase the grace of God, realizing Excuse me, that was last time. The aim of this morning's message is to highlight gospel hope woven through the ancient record of man or the record of ancient man. There is gospel emphases that, are high, that we can highlight or that are highlighted in our scriptures today like beautiful threads woven into the tapestry of history as it is recorded in our scriptures today. With that introduction, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word out of reverence this morning? Here we have the Holy Word of God in Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female He created them, and He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Enoch walked with God, verse 22 says, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind you of a passage of Scripture from two weeks ago from Galatians chapter 4. We talked about elemental principles, elementary principles of the gospel and identified one from Galatians 4 as the fullness of time. But when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4.4 says, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. From Galatians 4, we noted that a biblical philosophy of history might be summarized by this phrase, time measured by the progress of redemption. History is, biblically speaking... Time measured by the progress of redemption. Now, in that message, we identified how there's any number of philosophies of history that man might use and substitute, and, most of the, and those are most popular among the academic disciplines in our day today. Time measured by the progress of man. Time measured by the influence of great empires. Time measured by famous people through history. Time measured by technology through the ages. Time measured by a Darwinistic conception of the origin of the species and the development over time in uh, neo-Darwinian, micro-mutational, something-something, uh, uh, evolutionary, uh, whatever, and that is the history that is often accounted to us. All of these are vain philosophies compared to the overarching ultimate philosophy for the interpretation and record of value of what has happened in the history of man. And what is that value statement of the biblical philosophy of history? It is, I submit to you, time measured by the progress of redemption. The most important thing for the experience of mankind is that he would find hope in the promises of God that he might return in good standing and fellowship with a holy God, a God whom he is separated from because of his sin. Can you name me something more important in history and the experience of man than this? That he might know God in all his fullness and be reunited to him in holy communion and repar- in, in a reparative relationship? No. Thus, the Bible keeps priorities straight. Time is measured by the progress of redemption. Here in the beginning pages of Genesis, we find Moses operating on these premises. The world's first great historian is proceeding according to this notion. Thus, events signaling hope for mankind who has now fallen mankind who has fallen to be reconciled to holy god these are the events that are prominently featured in our text our passage today is preceded by the recurring phrase throughout the book and you'll notice this as a heading from time to time in the book of genesis this is the generations or these are the generations and what invariably follows is an official count or account or documentation often including a list of family descent or genealogy. In our text today, you'll notice this in chapter 5, verse 1. Moses opens the chapters by saying, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and thus proceeds the record. But he has already said as much before in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and then gives a historical account under that heading. A few other examples, Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. And then it continues with an account of Noah and his lineage and his legacy. Genesis 10 verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Genesis 11 verse 10, these are the generations of Shem and so forth. Each of these statements is, signals an official account And documentation follows, often giving a long list of family names. Genesis 5 contains a genealogy which is at times uh, interrupted to note a key figure or idea. In this way, chapter 5 is sort of a snapshot of the way the whole book is structured. The whole book of Genesis, um, or you could say Genesis 5 is a microcosm in structure of the entire book of Genesis which is an official genealogical documentation of family lines like a chain connecting revelatory jewels like diamonds or pearls on a necklace. The chain of these family lineages is interrupted at times with this jewel of revelatory truth, this gospel promise, this covenant moment, this milestone in time, which marks the progress of redemption. And Genesis strings those jewels on this chain of lineage, connecting them all together. And that's basically the framework of the book. In addition, Genesis 5 documents, as we have noted in our reading this morning, recurring incidents of natural death. It says again in our text in Genesis 5, It traces the tragic end of each one of these individuals, though they lived much longer than we're used to these days. Nevertheless, Adam, after he lived 930 years, died. Likewise, Seth, 912 years, dead. Enosh, after 905, he also died, and so forth. And with each one of these notes in the text, we have a reminder, recurring reminder of the consequences of sin. Natural death, has entered into the experience of mankind as a consequence of the fall that we've read of in chapter 3. And now, the reality of imminent death plagues the human condition. It's an ever-present reminder of God's judgment for sin. And in our day today, we have, even more frequently, the lifespan, as we noted last week, that Moses writes of in Psalm 90 is more like 70 to 80 years Lifespans have shortened since this early patriarchal period, and with each death that is marked in the history of mankind is a reminder over and over and over again of God's judgment for sin. The record also continues by virtue of the grace of God evident in demonstrating a few other things as well. God's grace is evident in showing that in spite of this fallen, sinful, and wicked condition, And in some ways, it's increasing in its wickedness until the arrival of Noah and a great worldwide flood. Nevertheless, there was that command, you remember? Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. In God's grace and in man's limited obedience, that is at least one command that he was partially faithful to. Thus, the lineage of mankind continues. Be fruitful and multiply, God had commanded, and so we see a record of the multiplication of Adam's line through the seed of Seth, as it were, in our text today. And with, this, uh, subs- and with each subsequent generation, the hope for a future son remains alive in the confession, in the hearts of the faithful. What is this hope of a future son? This was the proclamation over the serpent upon the fall of man, this promise. The Lord Himself said to Satan, He shall bruise your head, speaking of a future son of Eve, and you shall bruise his heel. This was the offspring of the woman that held out hope for man's salvation. So as the generations continue, so the hope of a future son remains alive. This morning, we could perhaps organize chapter 5 of Genesis around three signal interjections. There's this genealogy which it has a very predictable pattern. You know, for instance, Kenan lived 70 years. He fathered Mahalelel. Kenan lived, after he fathered Mahalelel, 840 years. He had sons and daughters. The days of Kenan, 910. Then he died. That's basically the framework. But perhaps you notice in our text, there are three interjections. At the beginning, with Adam, um, and a recapitulation, or kind of a recap of the conditions post-fall. In the middle, with Enoch. And something interesting connected to his life and legacy, and at the end of chapter 5, with Noah and the prayer and prophecy of Lamech, his father, for the hope that Noah held out for man. These are three signal interjections in the genealogy of Seth. And why does Moses pause at these? It is because he is pausing in that string of history upon the jewels that mark significant moments in the record of salvation in the experience of mankind." This is, again, the way the Bible records history, time measured by the progress of redemption. So let's look at these as Moses, the author of Genesis, draws our attention to them under three categories. First of all, Adamic first principles. So first principles of the reality of life that we learn from Adam are emphasized in our text today. Secondly, Enoch's testimony. The unique aspects of Enoch's experience that are highlighted in our text is something that Moses draws our attention to. Thirdly, Lamech's confession of faith. The prayer of faith by the father of Noah that his son might hold out hope for man's future. These are the three main points of our sermon today. First of all, signal interjection in the genealogy of Seth. In the beginning, we have Adamic first principles. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Moses writes... This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then I want you to note some key phrases. This is a summary of the reality of our post-fall condition and actually pre-fall as well. From creation through fall, these are realities of the human experience that form the foundation, the bedrock, the principles of reality that will attend us all the way through history. Number one, God created man. Verse one, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. So God created man, the image of God, or here translated, the likeness of God. Uh, Verse 2, male and female, He created them. There's a third principle, male and female. And He blessed them, there's a fourth, and named them, there's a fifth. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So there's a continuation of the human race through procreation, obedience, in obedience to the command be fruitful, and multiply." So this is a summary account emphasizing, as I've said, enduring essential realities that establish uh, a true understanding of the human experience of the human condition for all time. We reject these principles, we redefine them, we despise them uh, to our own destruction, and we do so betraying our sinful delusions. These first principles could perhaps be organized under three main categories, the nature of man, well, first of all, the nature of God, secondly, the nature of man, and thirdly, creation mandate. Who can give me, among the kids here, young people, who can give me a definition for theology? Theology is the study of, does anyone know? Whoa, who said God? Back there, great. Theology is the study of God. I have another trivia question for you. Anthropology is the study of. That's correct, Israel. Man, a couple of you got it. The study of God, theology. The study of man, anthropology. In the study of God under theology, we consider who God is, his nature. In the study of man, anthropology, we consider who man is, his nature. And just as a note for theology, broadly speaking, these two categories are often referred to as the cardinal or the kingpins or the foundations of correct understanding. A correct understanding of worldview, the Bible, the nature of things as they truly are, must necessarily include, at root, at foundation, an understanding of who God is and an understanding of who man is. And if you are wrong on either of these counts, You will not understand the Scriptures, you will not understand yourself, you will not understand reality, history, salvation, worldview, all of it will be lost on you. You will be aimless, darkened in your understanding, enslaved to sin, and you will not have your eyes open to the truth of your own condition or the truth of how you might be freed from the shackles of what plagues humanity ever since the fall. Who is God? Who am I? In light of Him. What is His hope that He holds out for me? These are essential questions, and they appear right at the beginning of the biblical text. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. First of all, we learn in just these summary statements that God is a personal creator. Who is responsible for our existence right here, right now, on this orb spinning through space at so many miles per second? in this you know dot in the cosmos of things who is responsible for this god the creator he is the one who has set in motion all things according to his perfect plan he is the reason we are here today he is our creator man fell in his sin but if he forgot in his sin that man was his creator he would remain lost he must remember that he answers to the lord who is his sovereign who is his god who in he, he must have in his consciousness this ever-present reality that he lives in light of the Lord and he serves, an, and to the degree he has any breath in his lungs, he does so because God has shown favor to him, at least providentially to some degree. This is the reality of the first principles that we learn from Adam. God is a personal creator. Second we, secondly, we learn that we are made in the image of God. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. We've covered to some degree in the, in the past, and this is by way of review, uh, what the image of God refers to. But there is a unique quality to being human that differentiates us, that renders us distinct from all the rest of the created world. You have a value to you and you have an innate ontology that means a nature of your being That sets you apart from a cow, a monkey, an ape, an orangutan, the primates, and any other class of animal on this earth. And already you can see how modern conceptions of so-called science are in direct opposition to what the Bible says is the nature of God and the nature of man. If all we are is a highly complex, developed ape, and we came from the animal kingdom, then the only thing that separates us from them is degrees of complexity. That is a worldview that does not take into account the truth, but reduces in its uh, its accounting for the nature of man us to our base desires. And it allows us, if we believe this, ostensible permission to divorce our thinking from any accountability to a sovereign spiritual being who is our Creator to whom we owe allegiance, and who is responsible for our existence on this earth. It is true, in fact, as we return and conform our minds to the standard of truth and God's immutable and holy word that we are made in the image of God. And any competing philosophy, worldview, idea, or high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is an idea that must be cast down by Scripture. Otherwise, we have fallen prey to the deception of the enemy, and we don't correctly understand who God is and who we are in light of Him. God is a personal creator. We are made in His image. Are there any whole-scale crimes against God's Word? Are there any activities, political positions, and postures that our society takes that deny the fundamental truth, the Adamic first principles that we are made in the image of God that come to mind as I'm speaking? I sure hope there are. Do we live in this society, in this nation, under the construct of our government as if man was made in the image of God? No. We deny rights to a whole class of people, namely children in the womb, and we grant permission to their parents, specifically their mothers, to take their life in cold blood. Why? Because we deny the first principles that we learn from Adam's experience and the account of man in the first place, that man is made in the image of God. And later in the Scriptures, in Genesis 9, the Lord says, for man's life, I require a life. In other words, the punishment for taking man's life in cold blood, for murder, is that your life would be taken. It's proportional justice. Why? The context tells us. It's because man is made in the image of God. We may kill a cow and fry a steak and delight our belly with the fullness of its caloric intake and appreciate it this great steak meal, and we could do so with a smile on our face without breaking God's law. But there is no circumstance whereby in cold blood we might take the life of another human being and not fall under the declaration of guilty of murder before the law of Almighty God. Why? Because man was made in His image, personal creator, image of God. Thirdly, male and female. He made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. You know, this is so basic, but oh, how we need these truths to reinforce our thinking in this day and age, do we not? I just gave you examples of where the image of God is violated to the tune of 60 million and counting when it comes to the unborn in the womb. But where is the distinction of male and female violated in our culture? It's all over the place. We're losing the created categories that God has established sovereignly that grant to us our identity such that we have become so confused that we think a male can identify as a female. A female may identify as a male or many other possible genders perhaps. In other words, reality is completely turned over to man to restructure in his own preference and image in our culture and worldview today. As if we were a little God and could create, recreate our experience whatever way we wish, we do so at the cost of our own soul. And we do so operating under strong delusion. And we do so violating the very first principles that are established in God's holy word, male and female, He created them. More than this, God issued a divine blessing. You'll remember the account of Adam. He breathed, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. Thus, the curse of Adam is that because of his sin, he would return to that same organic, unorganized material unless and until there was a resurrection of his body. So, what made man a living, breathing, conscious, spirit-filled form? Uh, it was the breath of God Himself breathing into man that blessing of consciousness and life. And without this, without the imbuing of the Holy Spirit in that first act in creation as it were, and without the Lord's continual providence sustaining each individual human being and all creation itself, it would all collapse in on itself. It would not be sustainable. But God breathed that divine blessing, as it were, into the lungs of Adam and sustains even us this day by His abiding grace. And He gave man a purpose. Furthermore, it says, He named him, blessed him and named them man. What this means is God established man as a kind, if you will, mankind, a unique category of creature made in His image. That is to say, in these first principles we learn from Adam God, as Creator, had the authority to, to define who we are, what our identity would be, what our purpose would be, and we and all of these we acknowledge are sovereignly dictated to us by our Creator. If we are living rightly, if we are reasoning well, if our lives are lived in accord with the Holy Scriptures, but even this we doubt today. Do we not, in our sin, man would like to define for himself his own purpose? We we go on these long journeys to find ourselves, to discover ourselves, to re-identify with some kind of you know autonomous self-search and so forth. And when we do so, we lose this first principle that God has ordained our purpose, and ultimately it is to glorify Him, as the confession summarizes, and to enjoy Him forever by submitting to Him as our Savior and Lord, and taking heed to His holy Word that we might discover ourselves. Are you on a search of self-discovery that's led you aimlessly through a bunch of truck stops on the road to delusion? It's a question that we should ask our culture. Well, if you can say, yes, I don't really know who I am. I've been on a search to find out what is my purpose. Look no further than the Holy Scriptures. Turn your attention to God's Word and therein you will find why you exist on this earth. And you, as you uh, submit and surrender to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and conform your life more to His will as He grants the ability, will find a deep and abiding satisfaction, even as Moses, the one time psalmist, wrote last week in Psalm 90 the satisfaction of steadfast love. May we know your divine favor, and may we celebrate your great works to the next generation. These are the things that define our purpose. The steadfast love of the Lord, appreciating His favor, and celebrating His majesty and His works. And then our passage, this summary, closes with this account. says, Adam lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image again. Adam, obedient to at least this command, be fruitful and multiply. And so he did. But even procreation these days is under assault. People consider children a burden. In our society today, we would like to free ourselves from the shackles of responsibility as much as possible. We would like to subcontract out all of the things that demand from us self-sacrifice and purchase for ourselves the most comfortable, easy life possible. But this is not our call. This is not the purpose for which we are created, to minimize responsibility for the sake of uh, padding, our, uh, padding our, uh, the luxurious life and so forth with all the cushion that convenience offers us in our modern age? No, we have a purpose beyond this. And the Lord, in His very first verses of Holy Scripture, in this very first portion and passages of the account of the history of man, grants to us a reality check, a priority check, a reorientation program. Understand what is the nature of God, what is the nature of man, and what is the creation mandate. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 27 and 28 uh, our passage today reiterates this, and of course again, Genesis 9, 1-9, as we'll study in future weeks, uh, tells us again after the flood, purpose for which God has ordained man generally. He blesses him, gives him a dominion mandate to go forth, be obedient to his law, remember he's made in the image of God, and to be fruitful and to pay attention to his covenant, because that is the only hope of his salvation. So here we have a signal moment. In the genealogy of Seth, that draws our attention to first principles in verses 1 through 3. Second, signal interjection, Enoch's testimony. As we read through this lineage, as we've noted, we see a very definite pattern. Verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. This is the basic formula that is repeated over and again seven times. It's repeated with Seth and then Enosh, and then Kenan, and then Behalel, then Jared, and then we get to Enoch, the seventh generation. Just to remind you, there's a symmetry between chapter 4 and chapter 5. There are two lineages in view back to back here. The first account in Genesis 4 was the lineage of Cain. Do you remember? Cain knew his wife, Genesis 4 17. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city um, at Enoch, there are a couple names that are repeated here, but a different person entirely than the Enoch that we're featuring today. He built a city. The name of the city, uh, he named it after his son. To Enoch was born Irad. Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered uh, Methushel. Methushel fathered Lamech. Lamech took, and then there's a pause, an interjection in the genealogy, if you will. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of livestock. Two more sons are listed, uh, Jubal and uh, Tubal-Cain and so forth. But then there's this note in verse 23. Lamech confesses to his wives Ada and Zillah. He sings this song or utters this poetry. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And This is a song that sounds a lot like the rebellious pop music of our day. It's a declaration of autonomy and rebellion against the Lord of glory. It's a celebration of wickedness. It's self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement. It's the apex of human pride. I will make my own rules. I will do as I please. I will take another's life into my own hands. I will take multiple brides for myself. I will live as I please. This is generation number seven from Cain, whereas generation number seven was Seth, from Seth was Enoch. So we have a juxtaposition here. We have a contrast. One is the fruition of wickedness in Lamech, and the other is this picture of salvation. This is Genesis 5.22. Think about this in contrast to Lamech. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered, Methuselah, excuse me, three hundred years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, in the first account, we have the seed of the serpent, if you will, according to Genesis three fifteen, a record of the generations, sin begetting sin begetting sin. But in the other account, in our text today, we have a record of the generations of Seth, the seed of the woman, if you will, where the lineage, where the heritage of faith and a future son is passed on. And then these glorious interjections of truth into this genealogy, including this fascinating story of Enoch, who never actually saw physical death, but walked with God after he fathered Uh, his son, for 365 years, and then walked, as it were, stepped, as it were, straight into glory. There's a cross-reference in Hebrews chapter 11 to remind you of this morning. Hebrews 11.5, our author says this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God." Um, Kids in the room, there's only one other person in the Old Testament that did not see physical death. Um, Some of you younger ones, anyone know who it is? Very good, Elijah. What happened to Elijah? Do you guys know what happened? Instead of dying, what happened to him? That's right, a fiery chariot from heaven came down, a taxi cab from glory, if you will, was ushered down through the heavenlies and he was there with his apprentice, Elisha, the next prophet. And Elisha found himself waving goodbye as his master and uh, his a mentor steps into this chariot and is brought straight from earth into heaven by in this glorious uh, a chariot. Israel and I are talking about uh, how Pilate's chariot, maybe it was a limo, like a stretch limo, and because he said there was actually archaeological evidence of of Pilate's parking spot outside of a certain theater in Rome. As glorious as all the chariots have been through history, the pharaohs, Pilate, and so forth, none of those could compare to the glorious chariots of glory of heaven. Uh, uh, And Elijah experienced this kind of ride from here into heaven. Amazing. These are the only two examples in all of human history of men who never tasted death. So what is significant about this? 2 Kings 2.11, by the way, is the story of Elijah's ascent into glory. Well, first of all, Enoch signals something. He represents something. First of all, communion restored. Enoch regained something that had been lost in the garden. Enoch enjoyed sweet fellowship and friendship and restored relationship, communion with God Himself. The greatest tragedy of Eden, when at the end of chapter 3, as I recall, the cherubim with flaming sword are placed as sentinels in, at the gate. And man, no, like a huge no trespassing sign. You do not cross here into the guarded presence of a holy God because you are a sinner. Somehow, way, Enoch experienced a restoration of communion, to some degree, with God. And this was a foretelling of salvation to come. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if your heart has been fundamentally changed by the gospel, you have experienced something akin to Enoch's testimony. You have experienced a renewed relationship with the Lord. In sweet communion and fellowship with him, you read his word as if it is your bread, your, your meat, and your food. And you sing songs of worship to him because your heart overflows with joy, realizing the purchase price of your salvation and the hope of eternal glory that you have in your Lord Jesus. Enoch was a forerunner of restored communion. His experience, his testimony signaled communion restored. Enoch was commended as righteous and his example is listed in Hebrews 11:5 as a forerunner of those who would join him one day in restored relationship and somehow some way mankind through salvation that God would supply we know it now through Jesus Christ and his great work of salvation on Calvary would be restored to have permission access to the presence of the Lord this is what Enoch's testimony represented communion restored more than this, Enoch, I submit to you today, was a priest uh, of sorts. There is a certain priesthood that his experience represents. Turn to Malachi chapter 2. I have a, another trivia question for you. Um, anyone under 15 in the room, can you give me a definition of antediluvian? Antediluvian. Anybody? Anybody? As you're turning to Malachi chapter two, parents, you might uh, help out. Um, now we'll uh, upgrade to the adults in the room. Antediluvian? Does anyone know? Oh, who said that? Gideon got it. Mom was close. It is post flood, or I'm sorry, pre flood. So antediluvian is an adjective referring. Uh, to events or people, in our case today, patriarchs, people that were pre-flood. So Enoch's testimony signals something of an antediluvian, a pre-flood priesthood, if you will. Why do I say this? Malachi chapter 2. Notice these are words of correction to the priests of his day as the prophet speaks. Verse 1, and now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you did not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Notice that there is a curse that's falling upon the priesthood. Even future generations will be cursed. And he goes on, In this kind of descriptive language to illustrate the shameful consequences of their behavior in verse 3, it will spread dung on their faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Notice covenant language, verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. So he's speaking of the priesthood in these words. This is the covenant with Levi. This is the office of those who would speak to God on behalf of the people who had special access to the presence of the Lord and tabernacle and temple worship. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and righteousness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So far as I know in my study for this message, this is the only other time in Scripture where reference to walking with the Lord is used, and it is in the context of the priesthood. That is to say, the priest, Levitic order, they were blessed with special access to the presence of God to walk with the Lord like Enoch walked with God in the antediluvian period so long ago. In this sense, in the language of our passage today compared to the rest of Scripture, we observe that the privileges of a priest in good standing are ones that Enoch, uh, that Enoch, uh, uh, was, that Enoch experienced as he walked. With God. The language indicates what is otherwise reserved for the priesthood, the tabernacle, temple, and the presence of the Lord. So there's something in the text that would indicate a priesthood, a prerogative, or a priesthood privilege that Enoch enjoyed. That is to say, he was so close to God and his favor was so much upon him that he walked with him. He enjoyed the presence of the Lord in an extraordinary way. I'll turn you in your memory to Hebrews, which tells us that through the torn flesh of Jesus Christ, as it were, we have access into the holy of holies. That is to say, the privileges of the priesthood are now available to anyone who has Jesus Christ as his high priest. The experience of Enoch walking with the Lord... Of enjoying the relationship that he had with the Lord so as to, and so profoundly that it's described as walking with him, is something that redeemed saints can also partake in through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Enoch's testimony stands for communion restored and priesthood realities, the privileges of priesthood offered to the children of man. And finally, a prophetic role as well. Jude 4, turn there with me if you would. Second to last book of the Bible, just one chapter. In Jude 4, there is a reference to Enoch as the author writes. The author is correcting people who are ungodly. In verse 4, second half, he says, those, or he describes these ungodly as those who would pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ. So that is the wicked posture of the unbelievers and the false teachers that Jude is opposing. But he invokes the testimony of Enoch if you will in verse 14 when he says, it was also about these so wicked people like the ones described at the beginning of Jude in Enoch's experience. It was about these that Enoch the 7th from Adam prophesied saying Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. He goes on to describe these individuals as grumblers, verse 16, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So what Jude enlightens us with is that Enoch stood for righteousness. Not only did he have a close relationship with the Lord, an experience that the priesthood would later enjoy, or those who are in Christ, but he also served in a prophetic role. He declared to the wicked generation around him, if they did not repent, as it were, then the Lord would come and rain down judgment upon them as if his, he had declared war with thousands and thousands of warriors. And it wasn't too long in the vast arc of history when this actually happened. The wickedness of the world increased until chapter 6 opens describing that man was multiplied on the face of the earth and so forth. The wickedness was increasing until God would bring, yes indeed, a worldwide flood. Enoch's testimony is one of restored communion, of a priesthood or a relationship with the Lord akin to that a priest would enjoy. And thirdly, of a prophetic call to issue the word of righteousness and call for repentance in a wicked age. And finally, Enoch's testimony represents resurrection hope. There is hope in Enoch's story that for those who walk in the favor of the Lord, favor secured by the blood of a substitute sacrifice, namely Jesus Christ, that there will be a resurrection one day. There will be an ascent into glory. When you and I are in the grave, you remember that old gospel Uh, A song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming Forth to Carry Me Home. There's uh, In that song, the uh, believer identifies with the experience of Enoch and Elijah. And it's a profession of faith that one day, the chariot of glory, one day will swing low to this earth and in the second resurrection, our body will be resurrected and we will rejoin the Lord in glory and we will be there with Enoch and Elijah and all the saints. Praising and worshiping the Lord in perfect, restored communion. And Enoch holds out hope in his testimony for this reality for future believers, or for the future of all believers. Thirdly, this morning, signal interjection. And finally, last point, in the genealogy of Seth. We've covered first principles we learned from Adam, a testimony of what to expect from or uh, what Enoch represents. And then finally, Lamech's confession of faith. It says in verse 28 of Genesis 5, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, quote, "...out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands." And then continues the genealogical formula, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. But this record of Lamech does not close without this interesting note, this prayer, this prophetic confession of faith in God's future for him that would hopefully come through his son. And indeed, his son Noah was an instrument of salvation, was he not? Lamech cried, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. He knew that by the Spirit of God, that his son Noah would somehow be an agent of salvation, an answer to prayer for those in bondage for deliverance that would come. That deliverance would take the shape of an ark that would carry the seed of the world to come, two of every kind and extra for food and sacrifices of the animal kingdom, and just eight people, Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives would pass through unscathed in the ark of God's salvation, having gone through that one narrow door, as it were, into that, uh, into that receptacle representing God's narrow way of salvation, passed through the waters of judgment to repopulate the earth and to continue the line of Seth all the way until the Messiah. This was what Lamech was prophetically recognizing when he cried out that his son might fulfill these hopes. In Lamech's confession of faith, it signals hope in a future son. Again, Genesis 3.15, that appointed son. Remember, Eve celebrates at the birth of Cain, I've gotten me a man with the help of the Lord, only to have her hopes dashed when he murders his brother. But then once again in chapter 4, towards the end, Eve confesses, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him and to Seth also a son was born, and so forth. So Eve recognized that Seth was the appointed one. All through history, we see appointed ones, as it were. That is, provisional covenant heads, people who signal that there is hope in a future son, and God demonstrates through their life and example and testimony what to expect in part of Christ in the future. Noah was one of these. Lamech's confession of faith signaled hope in a future son. It held out that lineage, that heritage, that one day the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Would it be Noah? He would speak to it. He would serve as a jewel on the necklace of God's redemption. But the ultimate glorious jewel would come in the future. Noah's son, down the line, many generations, Jesus Christ. Lamech's confession also signals hope in freedom from the curse. That the Lord has cursed, or out of the ground, that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Uh, relief, that is, from, he goes on, painful toil of our hands. This is a reference to the reality post-fall. Cursed is the ground because of you, God had declared to Adam as a result of his sin. Genesis three seventeen. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Lamech's prayer signals hope that the curse would be overridden someday, that there would be salvation for man, that God would grant a Savior some point at some point in the future to relieve us from the curse of our sin the indefinite toil, the sweat of our brow, and the painful labor that man must toil under as a result of breaking God's law. Lamech confesses faith in a future son, freedom from the cursed, and finally, future rest. The name Noah, scholars have recognized, probably means something along these lines, repose, relief, consolation, rest. The Creation week closed with a Sabbath day, a rest from the Lord's creative work, and it signaled a rest for man held out in the Sabbath day in the law. And this illustrated in in, in the structure of man's week by God's ordination, hope in a future rest to come. And Hebrews 4 picks up on this theme, ultimately, there is rest from the curse. And that is a rest that Enoch experienced when he stepped into glory. And Elijah uh, enjoyed when the chariot brought him into heaven, and it is a rest yet promised for you and I when that chariot swings low to usher us into the covenant promises that yet remain on the horizon for all who are in Christ Jesus. Through the blood of Seth, Lamech, Noah, ultimately Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, the heart cry, the prayer, and the prophecy of Lamech would be ultimately fulfilled, that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And this morning, with the fullness of Scripture revealing to us exactly who He is, we enjoy the vantage point of Christ coming in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, and fulfilling these promises that were given to us in the testimony of Adam, Enoch, and Lamech. This is the beauty and the genius of Scripture. I pray that it encourages us to proclaim Him to the lost, to those who yet toil under their sin, even today. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the message of Scripture that holds out through Jesus Christ a Sabbath rest for us. We thank You that in His salvation provided by His blood, there is the, the curse has been dealt with by His sacrifice on Calvary. We thank you that there is hope for future glory for all who are in him and that the vest- and those vestiges of the fall that still plague us to some degree will be a distant memory very soon when the curse is fully and finally erased and the glorious future of our home in heaven and ultimately the new heavens and new earth. We thank you that this is a reality through the promised son and that the signposts of redemption have marked the pathway of your works all through history. And as we've noted a few of them this morning, we pray that we would see them for, the, for what they truly signify, that it would encourage and equip us in our faith that we might stand strong and hold out hope to the lost. Finally, if there are any in the hearing of this message who do not know that hope and assurance of salvation in Christ, they would cry out in confession and repentance of their sins that they would place faith and hope in Jesus Christ, the Son who has come, the appointed one, and that they would find their sins washed away by His blood, and that they might serve Him with the joy of their salvation bubbling over until such time as we are all reunited in glory. Thank You, Father, for this time that we have shared together. May You multiply it for Your namesake and Your use. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.